Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Richard Spence, and he is just a recently retired professor of history at the University of Idaho. And I reached out to him. I was curious about this subject. We're going to talk about a book he wrote or was published back in 2017. The title of the book is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. But uh, Mr. Spence, also, uh, when he was teaching, specialized in Russian intelligence and military history, and his course offerings included modern espionage, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, history of secret societies, and the occult in history. And he had one of his first books uh, that I found was Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, published in 2002. Then also Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult fascinating book. I quoted that in my book. Uh, that was published in 2008. He's also done two great courses, and you can see those on Amazon. Uh, one is titled The Real History of Secret Societies. It came out in 2019. He narrates, and the, the audiobook comes with a PDF. And then in 2021, Crimes of the Century, A Selective History of Infamy. And uh, it covers some of the notorious criminal cases that have taken place uh, 20th century. And I also saw that he published a book with another author in 2020 titled Documents from Modern Russia. But this book really was a fascinating book. I finished it today. And uh, he does mention somebody, Anthony Sutton, who he can talk about, but who also kind of wrote something in a small, much smaller parameter of time. But this is much broader and uh, really was fascinating. Again, the title of the book is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. So, Professor Spence, thanks for uh, agreeing to the interview. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me on. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your background, like I was familiar with you before this interview, can you talk maybe about your career and some of the topics you were interested in and what led you to write this book, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution? Well, you know, usually when I'm asked, how did you come to this topic, whatever that topic might be, and my usual answer is that, well, through something else, one thing takes you to another. It's like meeting people. You meet one person, through them you meet someone else, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I'd say I started out, I did my grad work at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, UC Surfing Branch, in uh, in, the, in the 1970s. Uh, and that's where I got my, my PhD. And I, I came out of that whole experience, I guess, as a fairly regular, if there's a term for that, modern Eastern European Russian historian. So my main interest has always been in modern Russian history, which means, you know, you're talking about the Russian Revolution one way or the other. And, but more broadly in modern European, especially Eastern Europe, since all of those areas interconnect. And my main interests were the usual political history was the main thing I was interested in, political, diplomatic, and, and military history. So um, that then kind of segued into another aspect of that. If you talk about diplomacy and you talk about war, I'd say the third element you always have to bring in is espionage because, you know, espionage is what you do that isn't actually, that's beneath the level of diplomacy and is a substitute for war. And that drew me into really beginning to look at spies. So one of the first things I began to sort of refine you know, in your interest is that I became sort of aware of this whole world of espionage and, yeah, and, yeah, and not the kind of James Bond world of espionage of gadgets and beautiful women and, uh, and supervillains, but of the more uh, nitty gritty aspect of it, of, uh, con men, criminals, and pathological liars, which seems to be the people that I've often encountered in, in that realm. Uh, espionage attracts a very diverse array of human beings, and in some cases, the necessary skills to succeed uh, are those that would otherwise probably be considered to be disreputable or downright criminal in the other area of activity, you know, like lying. Uh, and, and murder, those little things of that sort. So actually, the first book I wrote, and this was, this was actually going to be my dissertation, and it wasn't my dissertation because I had a professor who said, no, you can't do it on this. This guy's too obscure. You know, if it, it, and it, the actual person, the book is called Boris Savinkoff, Renegade on the Left. And I bet there's almost nobody out there who's heard of Boris Savinkoff. 
but nevertheless, he was he was a important Russian revolutionary figure before and right up to nineteen seventeen and thereafter. He was a, a revolutionary terrorist. He's a contemporary of Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, all the rest, but he's not a Bolshevik. Uh, he was what was called a, an SR, a socialist revolutionary, which, without going into great detail, was a, a rival revolutionary party to what would become the Bolsheviks. And that's that's maybe one of these things that's often kind of lost in the historical shovel, or sh shuttle, or oversimplified, is that uh, Lenin and his Bolsheviks weren't the only game in town up till 1917. There were there were several different more or less socialist in by one term or another revolutionary groups that all had the common aim of wanting to overthrow the czar, but which were also competitors with each other. And it's always interesting to note that one of the first things the Bolsheviks do once they come into power is to put those other revolutionary rivals, the Mensheviks, the SRs, and other smaller groups out of business as quickly as possible. So Savinkov was this uh, SR revolutionary who basically felt that Lenin and his Bolshevik gang had stolen the, you know, had hijacked the revolution that he'd helped make, and was determined to try to reverse that. Uh, really, Savinkov was an egomaniac, as you know most political figures are, and he was mostly annoyed that Lenin held the job that he thought he should have had. So, having been a terrorist against the Tsar before 1917, he then becomes a terrorist against the Bolsheviks after 1917. And he engages in all kinds of, well, plotting, conspiracies, uh, you know, everything from forming rebel armies to invade the USSR, to taking money from any foreign governments who would give him in an effort to undermine and overthrow the Soviet regime, which he doesn't do. So, I was interested in him because he was he's an important figure. I mean, uh, but he's he's almost completely written out of history. You, you'll almost you, you'll occasionally catch once you know what his name is, you can find someone mentioning Savinkov here or there. And the reason he gets written out of history is pretty simply put, he bit every hand that ever fed him and he burned every bridge he crossed. He essentially, well, you know, he used and abused his relationship with people so that no one really wanted to talk about him. So no one in the Bolshevik camp wanted to talk about him, and really no one in the anti-Bolshevik camp wanted to talk about him because he seemed to represent everything that was bad about that. So that's what made him interesting to me. As how was this guy who was you know, a fairly important figure early on, how did he get himself edited out of it? out of the historical record. And, and that's what led the professor I mentioned to basically say, you don't want to do a dissertation on this guy because if there was anything to say about him, it already would have been said by someone else. That, by the way, is terrible advice. <laughs> and, and eventually I would, I, I would ignore that. And one of the things I would do is really never go back and revise the thing I did do my dissertation on, uh, and instead went right back to, to Savinkov. Well, Savinkov then led me to another guy, a fellow who became one of his financial props and his supposed grand friend and supporter, which was a, a nominal British spy slash businessman, most commonly known as Sidney Riley. And that's what the book, uh, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Trust No One, was about. And the way that most people may know Riley, if they've ever run across him, is probably through this British television series, this Thames television series, Riley, Ace of Spies, that came out of the 1980s. And that's how I learned about him, because I was watching PBS, you know, and there was Vincent Price, who's still around then, introducing this series. And, of course, I was interested in it because it had my guy in it. You know, Savinkoff was in there. And who mentions him? But then... It's about this fellow named Riley. And at that point, I'd never heard of because he just didn't really show up anywhere. So my first question as to whether this was a real person or it was some kind of Bond-like invention, you know, a fictional character you place in historical events. But no, he was real. There really was a Sidney Riley. And even though almost everything that series has him saying and doing, he never said or did. It's very entertaining, but historically it's bunk.
the real story about him was even more complicated than that. And, and really, um, yeah, that's one of these mysteries I've been trying to solve ever since. And, and Riley is one of those mysteries I don't think you'll ever quite solve. And the basic question about him is who he really was, uh, where he actually came from. And he used a number of names during his lifetime. Riley, by the way, is a, is a completely invented identity. All it is is the name on a British passport that was handed to him by British officials in 1899 to get him out of England and send him off to the Far East. You know, there, there's a whole reason here where they wanted to get him out of town, so they, they give him a new identity. Now, that, that's an interesting trick. I mean, who do you have to know to just simply get a new passport in a phony name? And that's the identity that he then lived under for the most part, although he's always using other ones on the side, up to the presumed death of Sidney Riley in 1925. And that's when he supposedly makes the mistake of going back to the USSR, where he was considered to be a political enemy and was then apprehended, interrogated, and shot. That's the standard version. And that may be true. Or half a dozen other things could possibly be true. The interesting thing here is that what does happen in 1925 is that Sidney Riley, this person that never really existed, keep in mind, this cover identity for someone else, well, Sidney Riley certainly dies in 1925. Nobody ever really shows up again using that name. I'm not absolutely certain that the person who used that passport died at that time. In the same way that I'm not absolutely certain what name he was born under. So this this is one of the things, again, that's, that's, you know, to me, this is interesting. To other people, this would just be an annoying conundrum that you can't solve, but that's what I like about it. I mean, this is, see, this is the puzzle that keeps you going. It's, it's the Rubik's Cube you can't solve. And, right, but Riley's kind of moving in the same thing around this book and all the kind of issues that you yeah. see. Russia, well, New York, World War One. So he's constantly kind of and and communicating with a lot of people in this book as well, right? So. Yeah, he's he features prominently in Wall Street in the Russian Revolution, um, along with a lot of other people, because more than a spy, what he is is an international businessman. So Riley spends most of World War One, in fact, the whole period leading up to and even in the early part of when the Russian Revolution occurs, he's nominally a Russian arms purchasing agent in New York where he's dealing with people in uh, American finance, uh, banking and businesses. He's taking out... Uh, he's taking out you know, contracts for weapons, artillery shells, rifles worth what would now be potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts from which he gets a share on the side. And, and that's where he establishes the connections with the American commercial and financial elite, which then thereafter, after 1917, after 1918, he then continues this. He continues this, you know, nominally acting as a kind of British agent of influence, and he's, he's not the kind of spy that you would normally think of. Again, if people try to think of – Riley, one of the things he's – you'll often say, you know, Sidney Riley is the model for James Bond. Again, not really true at all. Okay, his, his character is nothing like Bond's character, except that, you know, in some movies, Bond pretends he's a businessman. That's about as close as you get to, uh, to Riley. But Riley is – he – you know, one of the things that made him valuable – uh, I'll give you an, an example that in 1918, shortly after Lenin and his guys have seized power in Russia, and the whole situation is very unstable, and there's this whole question, especially within the British government, but also within the French and American, as to whether or not we should immediately assume that the, the Bolsheviks are German stooges and we should oppose them and try to overthrow them, or should we you know, maybe we can make some kind of deal with them. Maybe we can lure them back over to the Allied side. So the thing you have to keep in mind is in this period, there was no dominant opinion in London or Washington or Paris. There was an argument among different people within the government as to how the Bolsheviks should be dealt with. 
So the British at this point are very interested in getting any kind of tracks, inside, outside tracks that they possibly can. And in March 1918, the fellow who was the head of what we now call MI6, a fellow by the name of Mansfield Cumming, a naval officer turned spy chief, interviews Riley and hires him to undertake a special confidential mission inside Soviet Russia. So that's really when he officially enters the realm of, of British espionage. He'd probably been spying for the British before that, but now he's hired by this relatively new agency, what we now call MI6, in order to go into Russia and do something. Okay, that's that's the question. What is this special mission he sent in? And why does coming who's never met this guy before, why does he hire him? Now that becomes even more interesting when you look at the kind of information that coming received. Of course, you know, if you're gonna hire somebody for a mission, you're gonna vet him, right? You're gonna send us so Riley had been in New York buying munitions and involved in business there. So what Cumming does is that he writes to the British intelligence office in New York and he says, what do you got on this guy? And what they have on him is not very complimentary at all. In fact, the report he gets back, which says that uh, he is uh, dishonest, completely unscrupulous, uh, that he will exploit any situation for his own personal advantage, uh, and that he is absolutely not to be trusted. So what does Cumming do? He turns around and hires him for a confidential mission. Now, Cumming's not a fool. Why would he do that? This, this, is, so this is where you encounter something that just shouldn't have happened. Why, against all of the advice that you've received, and, and Cumming even admits in his diary after talking to Riley that he seems a very, I think, doubtful character. All right, he, doesn't, he doesn't come away trusting him. So why does he do it? Well, because he has, he has contacts and sources of information that nobody else has. So that's why he's being sent into Russia at this very politically unstable and sensitive time because he has connections there. Because where had Riley been before World War I broke out and he went to New York? Well, uh, for about a decade prior to that, he'd been in Russia doing business where he made all kinds of connections. And one of those connections that he made in fact, the Russian businessman, a, a Russian millionaire, you know, the equipment, you know, if Russia had its equivalent of Wall Street, this guy would be there, was a, a Russian banker, stock investor, some people argued stock swindler, let's say a businessman of uh, many different parts, a fellow by the name of Abram Zhivatovsky. Again, a name probably never heard of, but Abram Zhivatovsky was among the 1% of Tsarist Russia. He was a very wealthy man and, again, had all kinds of connections in railroads, banking, finance, uh, the Russian stock market. And Zhivatovsky had hired Riley as his agent to go to America and conduct this war purchasing for Zhivatovsky's business partners, this consortium he was running. And so what Riley actually ran in New York and in, in an office in the Equitable Building at 120 Broadway, uh, which is kind of, if you, you know, if you're wondering where in World War I, where's Conspiro Central in Manhattan, it's 120 Broadway. So Riley's sitting there and he's the president of a thing called the Petrograd Trading Company, which is owned by Abram Zhivatovsky and Riley is his agent. Now, what else is interesting about Abram Zhivatovsky other than the fact that he's one of the richest men in Russia and that Sidney Riley is his employee slash partner. Well, Abram Zhivatovsky also happens to be the favorite uncle of Leon Trotsky, the number two man in the Bolshevik hierarchy after Lenin. And that, once I figured that out, this began to make sense about what was going on. Because Riley was connected to Zhivatovsky. Zhivatovsky is connected, you know, even though he is a, a capitalist, a kind of arch-capitalist, his nephew, and by the way, his favorite nephew, 
Trotsky admits this in his autobiography that Uncle Abram was, you know, I was the only one of the nephews that he ever paid any attention to. He'd known him since he was a kid. So there's this family connection. And that leads me to believe, that is my strong, is that is that Riley was acquainted with Trotsky. Because Trotsky actually had spent time in New York in 1917. And they're all sort of moving in the same circles. So here's what I think Riley sold to Mansfield Cumming, to this British spy chief who hired this very dubious guy. And remember, they're looking for any kind of, you know, they're for any kind of link, any sort of back door they could possibly get. Now, here's this guy, Riley, kind of an unscrupulous businessman, who has a personal link through Zhivatovsky to Trotsky the Soviet commissar of war that generally recognized as the second most important person behind Lenin. Now, that's what makes it, that's, that's the only thing to me that makes any sense of why, given all the negative information you'd received, you would have sent Riley on this mission because what Riley was supposed to do was somehow open a back door to Trotsky. And if you look in this period, you find out that Trotsky is doing all kinds of things that are actually fairly solicitous to the British. Uh, he is really open to cooperation for a while. And that then sort of draws you into this whole world of intrigue, plots, counterplots, attempted coup d'etats, the assassin, the, the attempted assassination of Lenin in August 1918. Here again is one of these little kind of historical details. I think it's more than a detail. Is that in August 1918, less than a year after the establishment of the regime, Lenin's in Moscow is given a talk to a bunch of workers in a factory, and somebody, notice I said somebody, puts two bullets into him, almost kills him. And a woman, another dissident revolutionary, another you know thwarted radical, um, by the name of uh, Fanya Kaplan, is. Uh, arrested, supposedly confesses for the crime, and is executed, all without a trial. It is, for a number of reasons, extremely doubtful that she would have committed the crime, not the least reason being is that she was clinically blind. Wow. <laughs> I mean, she couldn't really see well enough um, to do this. And, you know, you've got other problems. The bullets, the calibers don't seem to match. And, well, you know what that means? There had to be a second gun. So there's this whole question about who shot Lenin. And whether or not this was the work of allied agents or whether it was the work of people, you know, a, a dissident group within the Bolshevik party itself, to this day, we still don't really know for sure as to who did it. Uh, but the action still stands. But what eventually emerged out of this, and, and this, by the way, is something, a conclusion that I've come to since writing the book. And it's really one of those things that, gee, you know, I almost wish I'd waited to write the book. Um, but what it comes down to is that what Riley really was, as opposed to being a representative of Western, especially British intelligence, who was trying to overthrow the Bolsheviks, from 1918 on, he'd effectively been a Soviet agent. He's a mole. He's actually one of the first... Soviet agents, or at least an agent willing to be used by the Soviets to worm his way to a degree into British intelligence, which they catch on to, and in the early 20s they cast him aside, but that's simply part of what his story was. But then it comes back to these connections of who he was dealing, doing business with in New York, and you find the connections even then between people who are on the revolutionary end of things, who are doing very weird things like negotiating with the National City Bank of New York for, for Russian loans. And, and, this is, and this is one of the things you'd eventually found that, that works its way. So Wall Street and the Russian Revolution is really a kind of compendium. It, it is a... A, an assembly of all of the things that I learned, all of these bits and pieces, all of these kind of puzzle pieces for a giant jigsaw puzzle that has no edge pieces, that I basically collected when I started researching Riley.
this is really sort of the fruit of that and, and in an expansion into the other people that he came in contact with and people they came in contact with and this very strange world that emerged of this often this kind of handshake in a way that's going on between what on the one hand appear to be Marxist anti-capitalist revolutionaries and on the other side arch anti-Marxist capitalists who are continually doing business with each other and that's what it was there's the the book you mentioned earlier Anthony Sutton was a, uh, a researcher back in the 1960s and 70s and he's uh, probably best known today for a, a trilogy of books he wrote I think the first one was Wall Street and the Russia uh, the Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and then he wrote uh, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, and I think the third one was Wall Street and the Rise of FDR. All of them are very interesting reading. But the one, because of my interest that attracted my most attention, was Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, which, again, takes a rather narrow focus. He's just looking at the Bolsheviks, pretty much events in 1917. And what Sutton did is that working in the 1970s, he had relatively little to go on. I mean, there were almost no archival materials that were available at the time. And so what he was able to see was many of the things that I would see later, which is that there, you know, there's this cooperation going on. So what's the result of that? And his book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, raised all the right questions. He was asking the right questions. He didn't really have a lot of information to give particularly firm answers to them. And, you know, in some cases he was guessing and he was off base. We all are. But for the most part, the general thrust of what he was looking at was real. He wasn't imagining this. And I came across his book probably around the same time that I became interested in Riley and his dealings in New York because there seemed to be a crossover. And then, you know, even though Sutton never mentions Riley, he didn't know that he existed. He does mention 120 Broadway. <laughs> so he's got this whole chapter about this building that, that it was the, you know, it's just a huge office building, but so many different people uh, in this kind of uh, revolutionary capitalist uh, in you know web that existed had offices in the, in that one building and I, I it was interesting to me that we both sort of noticed this was what was going on so what I wanted to do was to take Sutton's book I wanted to expand it greatly in time put it in a larger context of what had been going on both before and after those periods and to really bring in a lot more historical material uh, in order to shore up this basic and to make as clear a picture as you could of something that there isn't supposed to be a picture of right and a lot of people wouldn't know that there were so many outside forces financial forces that were interested in influencing in, in influencing a change in russia can you talk about what happened in 1905 and how that reverberated uh particularly in wall street well I start out in 1905 because that's this, the year in Russian history in which an abortive revolution takes place. So there's a large scale of the revolution of 1905. And the revolution of 1905 was a, a fairly disorganized attempt by Marxist revolutionaries, nationalists, dissident minority groups, and a lot of you know angry peasants to topple the regime of Nicholas II. And it failed. Uh, Nicholas preserved his throne, and in fact, in so many ways, the imperial government emerged out of that even stronger than they were before, and the revolutionary movement divided and demoralized. And, and that itself is one of those things that's interesting. After 19, between 1905 and really the outbreak of World War I, really all the way up until 1917, the Russian revolutionary movement was, for all practical purposes, defeated. Uh, it had suffered failure in 1905. It, it, it suffered from factional and ideological division. They, they never grow closer. They just grow further apart. And it also suffered from infiltration by the Tsarist secret police, who had riddled every single party, including the Bolsheviks, with informers, and had actually placed some of their agents or compromised people in, 
in positions of influence and even control. To the point that you could basically make an argument that the Zara secret police, right up to 1917, had their finger on everything that was happening in all the revolutionary parties. Yeah, nobody could plot anything without them knowing, you know, taking notice of it. And in many ways, they, the, the secret police, this thing called the Okrana, seemed to sort of control the revolutionaries. Except in 1917, oddly, they don't. And, and, and that, again, is this kind of interesting question. How does a security agency which has so thoroughly infiltrated and manipulated these revolutionary parties then just stop doing that? Or do they begin manipulating them for slightly different reasons? So all of this was one of the things that, that really made me curious as to how all of these these pieces fit together but the other thing that i found if you go back to 1905 one of the things you see is if you look at the american press so here's one of the things that uh, i find you need to pay a lot of attention to is you go back and look at what was actually reported in the newspapers at the time now that doesn't mean that what was reported in the newspapers at the time was absolutely true because Nothing's absolutely true, or rarely so, but you know what, what the thoughts were. It gives you an idea as to what the sort of picture, the mindset was. And in the United States, almost universally in the American press, the revolution of 1905 was seen as a positive thing and that Tsar Nicholas was a bad guy and that the revolutionary forces were the good guys. And there was a great deal of sort of cheerleading for their success and disappointment when those failed. And I also found that there were prominent people in the American economic scene, like the industrialist Charles Crane. Again, I don't know if Charles Crane is much of a name today, but, well, if you ever go into a public restroom and see one of those things that it says Crane, okay, he's that Crane. Uh, his family produced a lot of things besides plumbing fixtures, but that was the fortune he came from. And, and Charles Crane was one of these guys, and, and, I, and he's, he's a, a type that you find other ones. Crane, in, his father had actually created the business. Crane inherited wealth in the company, which he never took a huge interest in running because what he wanted to do, see if this sounds vaguely familiar, he had all of this money, and his belief was that in a way God had given, this, given him money to achieve great things in the world. So I have fortune, I have this fortune, and I can do things like I can invest in regime change. So one of the things that, because that's, that's there's always an economic element to that. I mean, you can always argue that, well, I, I want to help the downtrodden people and the heroic revolutionaries of country X overthrow their oppressive regime because it's a nice thing to do. But then also behind the scenes, it's also potentially a very profitable thing to do because it means everything in country X will be for sale, right? right. Overthrow the old regime, make a deal with the new regime. And so Crane was uh, one of these people who's driven by this combination of egomania and you know, philanthropism, uh, a, a desire to leave his mark on the world. I think that's a big part of it. And you can find that you know early on he, he actually subsidizes revolutionary groups in the Balkans. So there were there were various nationalist revolutionary groups that were fighting against the Ottoman Empire, and Crane's throwing his money around there. And then Crane takes this great personal interest in Russia, partly because uh, a subsidiary of his company operates there, uh, the the Westinghouse, uh, the Russian Westinghouse Company, which produced air brakes for the Russian railroads couldn't run a railroad without them. So that's why he was making these visits to Russia was because his American corporation had investments in Russia, which of course they always wanted to expand and to protect in terms of what they had. So Crane becomes acquainted with a variety of Russian political figures, all of them anti-Tsarist figures. So Crane decides that, you know, the the, the czarist regime is is it is a bad thing. It's evil, and it must be replaced with a new Russia. 
So all the way back in 1905, you find Crane, and he's not the he's the most prominent example of this, who's openly backing the revolutionary movements in Russia. Even though these movements are for the most part avowedly socialist, avowedly Marxian, and Crane is certainly an avowed capitalist, but it, it to him it sort of goes beyond this. I mean, there are the potential profits for his enterprises, but there's also his idea that he's doing good, that he's going to be on the right side of history. So by the time you get to 1917, you've still got Crane, uh, who's you know playing around with, you know, Crane is continually has his fingers in, in, in American Russian diplomacy. And even though he holds no official position whatsoever, even though he is not part of the State Department, he gets State Department communiques, partly because his son is a State Department official. So Crane, and this is one of the things you find about other figures on you know, what we'll call the Wall Street elite, sort of run their own foreign policy. I mean, they're actually out conducting what is American foreign policy, and yet it's not being conducted through the State Department. It's not being conducted with the knowledge or even specific approval of the president or Congress or anybody else. They're making the policy, right. <laughs> which I don't think is anything new either. So right. by the time that yeah. – yeah, You still see ahead. that by rich, pe rich people today still are doing that for sure, yeah. Yes, in well, you know, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald said the rich are different than us. And but but one of the ways I think that this can affect you is, you know, let's say that you're, I don't know, Bill Gates, right? Just and I'm not going to pick on him, but Bill Gates didn't start. You know, he's not a guy who started out with a fortune. He he got well. He was either very smart or very lucky, and a combination of both. And now you have all of this money. I mean, more money than you could ever possibly spend. And I think one of the ways that it was put to me, that always resonated with me, is that people who find themselves in that kind of position are always faced with this idea of, you know, why me? Why do I have all? Because most people don't. I mean, you know, the basic reality is that then and now, the vast majority of human beings who live on this planet are, relatively speaking, poor. And then there's a certain level above that that aren't poor, but they're not rich. And then, you know, it's what we like to call the 1%. They're even less than that. who have this fantastic amount of, of things available to them. So why do you have this is the question. You know, in the wee hours of the morning when you're lying there, you're thinking, why, why has Providence, God, the Cosmic Muffin, I don't know, whatever it is, why do I have all of this money? Well, to do some great thing. I don't know. Start a colony on Mars. Create the Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation. Do something. Start throwing money at all kinds of things that I think are, are good causes. And, and possibly also profitable ones as well. Right. So in That's Crane's mind, he wants to make money and do good, which is actually a lot of the kind of Protestant worldview in a lot of ways. It wasn't yeah. just Russia. It's a global outlook, a global view. But they had all – I was surprised to see Mark Twain – in your book that he was yeah. also about so the Taurus is the bad guy there's the bloody Sunday they shoot a bunch of people it's authoritarian there's pogroms too so there's other people it's not just oh no it's, it's not just Jacob Schiff can you talk about Jacob Schiff well Jacob Schiff is uh, his name will often Jacob Schiff was probably the second most important investment banker in the United States in this period around World War One. next only to J.P. Morgan Jr. So J.P. Morgan is the 500-pound gorilla of American finance. But Schiff was uh, the sort of chief competitor. And when we're talking about investment banks, what, what Kuhn Loeb, the bank that Schiff was the president of for years, did was that it financed railroads. So if you're going to build a railroad, you know, a transcontinental railroad, the Northern Pacific, uh, you're going to have to have – you're going to need money. You're going to need investment money. And banks like Kuhn and Loeb are the ones who found that both in the United States and abroad because one of the things about Schiff and Kuhn Loeb is that they are essentially a German bank. Right, German Jews, right? Yes, they're all they're linked to this. I mean, what everyone will tend to focus on is that ah, Jacob Schiff and all the major figures in his firm were Jewish, which is true. It w it was the Jewish bank on Wall Street. Morgan was not that at that time. 
thing, you know, things became a little more open later on. But that was the other thing to be pointed out. But but what Schiff, the most important thing about this, if you keep looking at the Jewish angle, you're missing the fact that Schiff is also a German. He is a German, and that's not insignificant to him. And what he's most closely linked to, in fact, what he's linked to through business are the, are the Warburg Bank. You know, Germany's the Warburg Bank, but under Max Warburg. So one of the biggest banks in Germany, in Imperial Germany, was the banking house of M.M. Warburg and Company. And the Max Warburg was the head of it, but two of Max Warburg's brothers, uh, Paul and Felix, were partners of Kuhn Loeb. Uh, they had been brought. They had actually sort of married into the firm. So, if you really look at it, in effect, Schiff's Bank, Kuhn Loeb, is the American branch of the Warburg Bank in Germany, and that is one of the things that becomes very interesting because when the war breaks out, Germany's now at war with Russia. Uh, Max Warburg is very close to Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, Max Warburg is, among everything else, as he sees it, a patriotic German. Let's put it this way. Max Warburg is a man who, if you called him a German Jew, would not like it because he considered himself to be a Jewish German. And that was one of the things that was often quite important to him. So again, you know, Warburg wants to serve the imperial German war effort, which would mean trying to knock Russia out of the war, but also, of course, to, to make money in the process. Because that's, you know, this is one of the things I think I say at the end of the book. Well, you know, why, why would capitalists um, involve themselves in politics and, and make deals with revolutionaries? And to me, it's very simple because they see a way of making money off of it, which is what they do. That's what you do. If you're involved in investment banking, whether it's Jacob Schiff or someone else, if you're involved in that, everything you do is looking for investment opportunities and a revolution is an investment opportunity. A civil war is an investment opportunity. And what you pay attention to is you pay attention to how much potential gain can be made. Well, of course, you know, being on the right side of history, if you possibly can. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting thing that Warburg is the really much of the head of German finance during the war. He he is involved himself in economic espionage in Russia during the war. In fact, one of the things that Max Warburg does is to make efforts to undermine the Russian economy. Okay, You're at war with Russia now, and therefore anything that would bring about undermining the economy, causing Russia's internal collapse, which eventually happens, would not only serve the interests of imperial Germany, it would, of course, serve the interests of the large banks of Imperial Germany. So you've got Warburg, who is then linked to Schiff. Schiff also, uh, because he is Jewish and because of the anti-Jewish policies of the Tsarist regime, is is violently anti anti-Tsarist. Uh, I mean, Jacob Schiff has a real. He's got a real burr up his keister about, about Tsarist Russia. And is there, And in 1905, one of the things that Jacob Schiff did is that he subsidized revolutionary propaganda. He spent money to be used to print revolutionary propaganda to be distributed to Russian prisoners of war in Japan, because there's also a thing called the Russo-Japanese War that was going on. So he's perfectly willing to do that. Now, Jacob Schiff is, is not a Marxist. Anything but. He's a very conservative almost orthodox in, in his Judaism. Um, uh, but but nevertheless, he He's hated... very sympathetic about the programs and stuff, but it's also not just getting loans to those people. It's making sure that the Russian czarists don't get loans, right? So yes, he also, he also went out of his way. He's very public about this. He goes, you know, remember, for most of World War I, the United States is a neutral country. So the war breaks out in August 1917, the United States doesn't enter the war until April 1917. So prior to that, Manhattan is this huge kind of battleground for both the Germans and in particular the British in gaining political 
advantage, but also economic advantage. So, you know, what the British do is they get J.P. Morgan to underwrite their war effort. That's what it is. And, and, and J.P. Morgan eventually gets control over all allied purchasing in the United States. You know how much money you can make off of that? He'll later insist that, well, you know, we only took 1% on all of our war deals. Now, 1% of what? A lot of money. So it was uh, something that was very profitable there. But Schiff is determined for most of this period to block any kind of American lending. Now, we can lend money to the British and the French. I don't care. Schiff's personal sympathies, because he's a German, member, are with Germany. And he's fairly open about that. So he's going to block any kind of, and and he's successful in doing that for a time. But then in 1916, the Russians, the Tsar's government, actually does negotiate loans on Wall Street, particularly through a big American bank called the National City Bank, you know, Citicorp today. Rockefeller, yeah. Uh, and Rockefellers are involved in that. And and then you find that the guy who's actually the, the chief uh, figure of the National City Bank who goes to Russia and negotiates these loans is a fellow by the name of Samuel McRoberts. And Samuel McRoberts also happens to be a great personal friend and business contact with, oh, Sidney Riley, who works for Abram Zivotovsky, who's Leon Trotsky's uncle. <laughs> so you see how these connections begin to get rather interesting. But then even more interesting, the, the, the banker, there's, there's a Swedish banker who's the intermediary, who's, he actually gets this job as a representative of the Imperial Russian Ministry of Finance to go to New York and work out these deals. And he's a guy by the name of Olaf Oshberg. And Olaf Oshberg is also a Marxist banker. <laughs> he runs a thing called the, the New Bank. So you've got a guy who's a, a Marxian socialist banker, which is a little weird to begin with, who's now the intermediary for the Russian imperial government in making loans in New York through National City Bank with the help of Sidney Riley. Uh, and you can see how these things, I mean, they're, they're continually inter intertwined in this way. Right. I mean, it's amazing. And then also like the financing of Trotsky to come all the way through, to come to Russia. I mean, come to the New York and all the all the stuff that really happened on Wall Street was very influential, influential in what happened in Russia. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, Trotsky shows up. He's uh, during the war. He's in, he's in exile before the war. So he's in France. But because France is an ally of Russia and Trotsky was, well, anti-Russian. Uh, he's kicked out of France in 1916 and sent into neutral Spain, and then the Spanish kick him out, and he ends up on a boat bound for Manhattan. And this was one of the, the interesting things um, that I began to discover, uh, and I have a couple of articles about this. One is called Hidden Agendas. The other is called Interrupted Journey. Both of those deal with Trotsky's time in New York. But here's one of the little details. Um, Trotsky in Spain has no money. All right, he's, he's very clear that at one point he's got like 40 pesetas to his name, which isn't a lot. That's like you know a pack of chewing gum and some cigarettes. But nevertheless, somehow, in, in uh, late 1916, he gets first-class tickets for himself, his wife, and his two children on a Spanish liner to New York. And I could actually found out the person who paid for the tickets, and it was a Russian exile living in Madrid, also a kind of wealthy businessman, but again, a, a Marxian revolutionary who pays for these tickets. Although, you know, whether it was on his own or whether the money came from somewhere else isn't really clear. There, 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 one little detail is that there supposedly was a woman who gave that particular figure the money in order to pay for Trotsky's. But somebody paid for first class, not second class, not third class, first class tickets on this ship. And when they arrive in New York and you look at the, the entry, the immigration forms, you'll find out that Trotsky declares that he has $500 on his person because you had to say how much money you had, which doesn't sound like that much now. But remember, multiply 500 by 20 and you'll get a current value very roughly. So he came, I mean, a guy who had no money, like a week before, oh, shows up in New York with $500 in his pocket. 
Where did that come from? And and what hotel is he already registered to stay in? Well, the Waldorf Astoria, the most expensive hotel in Manhattan. <laughs> so it's these little questions as to how this penniless revolutionary exile ends up in first-class accommodations with cash money in his pocket registered in the most expensive hotel in New York. And then gets a nice modern apartment in the Bronx, has a chauffeured car driving him around. He apparently knows some people with money. Which Wait, he's, he does. A, he's a professional socialist revolutionary. That's, that's it. Awesome. I mean, he's he's a he's a journal. You know, if he had a job, it's journalist, which means that and and that's what happens when he he shows up in New York. Well, he goes right back into political activity. He be you know he joins the local social. You know, there's no communist party yet. So he joins uh, the American, you know, he people within the American Socialist Party uh, becomes quite active in, in that regard. Um, Giving speeches, networking, yeah, pretty right. Yeah, you know, but, but you know, but they do with these. What happens at these meetings, though, is you go around and you pass the hat. Okay, that's that's the way revolutionary groups finance themselves, ostensibly. You know, you call the meeting, get the faithful there, you give them a pep talk, and everybody passes the hat. It's like church. And, you know, you can keep, you, you can, you know, pay somebody's rent that way, but you're eventually not going to make a lot of money. So remember, revolutions don't finance themselves by passing the hat at meetings. You need somebody with deep pockets. So something, and I can't tell you exactly what, happened in the three months that Trotsky's in New York, which keep in mind when Riley's in New York doing business at 120 Broadway. You know, Riley, who is the friend, confident, and local representative of Trotsky's favorite uncle. And it, to me, it's inconceivable that the two of them just never ran into each other. So what Trotsky is in New York doing is he's looking for money, okay, because revolutions need money. And the most common story you'll hear is that, well, Trotsky met with Jacob Schiff, the guy who had financed Russian revolutionary propaganda in 1905, and got him to subscribe, got him to promise money that went in some way. And that makes a certain amount of sense, except when Trotsky's in New York in March 1917, what happens? Well, there's a revolution back in Russia, and Nicholas abdicates. So here again is one of these details that's often missed. In 1917, there are two Russian revolutions. There's the one in March, not by Marxist revolutionaries, but by political liberal conspirators within the parliament, within Nicholas's own government, really. They're the ones who force him to abdicate. And then it's eight months later that that regime is overthrown by Lenin and his Marxist revolutionaries. The Kerensky government, right? Last the Kerensky, year. yeah, what you call what's called the provisional government or the Kerensky. Kerensky is the guy who becomes the most prominent figure of it. So the problem with this is that what Jacob Schiff was all excited about, it was that he he couldn't stand Tsar Nicholas and he couldn't stand the imperial regime, but then in March, it's overthrown. So if Schiff's basic desire was simply to get rid of the czar. Well, that had already been accomplished, which then undermines his interest in funding Trotsky or any other revolutionaries to do what? Well, the guy I wanted gone is already out of the way. But keep in mind, there are lots of other people around. There's Charles Crane, who thinks that this, this first revolution is only the first of more changes to come. And there are others. I mean, there's this whole possibility of what's going. And so, one of the things you notice in after the overthrow of the Tsar is that there are these series of uh, of American missions, special missions. The Red Cross, the American Red Cross mission, is one of the main ones. And there's these groups, and all of them have one thing in common. They're all essentially dominated by Wall Street figures. All the key figures, in this case, it's Crane is involved behind the scenes. You got another Wall Street big shot by the name of William Boyce Thompson, uh, mining millionaire. There's another fellow who comes along by the name of Raymond Robbins, who also made his money in, in mining. And William Boyce Thompson basically goes over and again begins throwing money around everywhere, um, basically proclaiming that he's going to support the new 
democratic regime under Kerensky gives him at one point a million dollars in his own money. Now here you've got William Boyce Thompson goes in, he writes a check to the Russian government for a million dollars ostensibly to finance anti-German propaganda. But before that check is cashed, before that money is actually spent, Kerensky's overthrown by Lenin. Now, does William Boyce Thompson turn around and say, well, I want my money back? No. The Bolsheviks are just the new, and he goes, they, they can keep it. And now they can, they can print up revolutionary propaganda. Let them print all the Marxist propaganda they want to distribute among German troops on the Eastern Front. And, and that's doing the same thing. And then you find William Boyce Thompson coming back and to Wall Street, to, to you know, entire meetings of his fellow poobahs, and in the New York Times and other newspapers praising the Bolsheviks as the true representatives of Russian democracy. And it, yeah, they'll never make a separate peace with the Germans. And yeah, they talk all of this kind of anti-capitalist stuff, but, but they're really the good guys that we have to support. And again, the main point, if you look at, you know, Thompson, Robbins, and others, these are not obscure figures. These are major figures in the American financial scene who are openly supportive of this of this revolutionary revolutionary cause. Right. And then and then uh, Trotsky makes his way back, becomes the second guy, and really runs the Red Army. Like so he's spending time giving speeches on the run, kind of like Lenin, who I think came out of yeah. uh, infamously went to Petrograd on a train, right? Supposedly laid with... Well, Lenin was, like most of the revolutionaries, they, they'd all been exiled from the country. I mean, none of them were in Russia. They were all arrested and kicked out. So Lenin's in Switzerland, in neutral Switzerland. So when the Tsar is overthrown, there's this... And the, one of the things the provisional government does, because it's, you know, now when it, it issues a kind of ali-ali oxen-free for all the political exiles. So anybody who is exiled by the old regime can now come back. So Trotsky, when this happens, is in New York. So, you know, Trotsky gets on a boat and after some detours along the way, makes his way back through Scandinavia. And although he is assisted in that, because there was always the and, and the people who the people who assist Trotsky getting back to Russia are the British. Because he couldn't have left New York without their approval because they controlled transatlantic traffic. So one of the things that Trotsky had to do is that he had to go to the British passport control office, which is controlled, by the way, by British intelligence, and he had to get an authorization to go back, and, and they gave it to him. Now, on the, along the way, he's also arrested by British naval officials in Canada and held for a month in an internment camp. But in the end, he's let go. Uh, in one of my articles, I have a whole belabored explanation as to why that takes place. But again, there were there were different British officials doing different things. So you had some people arguing that this guy appears to be, you know, if he was trying to overthrow the Tsar, that must mean he was trying to serve the interests of Germany, which he, he was kind of. So we should stop him. He must be a German agent. Well, there were others arguing, no, this is a guy who could be, you know, really potentially useful to us. You know, if we just cultivate them the right way. I mean, think of it this way. Go back and look at American policy towards Fidel Castro in 1959. And you go back and you find the number of people who just, even in the CIA, just love Fidel Castro. Right? You know, because, because, you know, Castro was, you know, maybe his brother Raul is a commie, but, but Fidel, if we just finesse him in the right way, then we can continue the kind of influence that we, that we had before. So there's this, you know, the bottom line so much of this is that you simply have bankers and capitalists doing what bankers and capitalists do which is to make money any way that they can. You make your investments, you play the angles, but then you also have very often these actions justified by what are aesthetic or political choices. I mean, one of the interesting things you find is you can find people who, I think Raymond Robbins is an example. You know, Raymond Robbins is a fellow who made his money 
uh, on Wall Street, but who also was generally sympathetic to the ideas of socialist revolution. That That's not that odd. I mean, socialist bankers are, and I'm just talking about one of them, Olaf Oshberg, is in fact that. He is a socialist banker. There's no inconsistency between those two. If you looked within the the new Bolshevik elite that's going to emerge, you're going to find people like Leonid Krasin, who was a corporate executive. Yes, he was, he was a Marxian revolutionary, but he also was uh, I, a, an agent for a German company, Siemens Schuchert. He's, he's, he's an engineer. He's, he's a corporate manager. And he knows, so these, these worlds are not separate. They're, they're combined. But all of them thought that this was a great step forward. So socialism there... Was it, uh, again, we're headed towards a utopia, you know, thank God that the czar is gone and uh, we can really achieve something. So they didn't know what was on the horizon. Well, here's the interesting thing to keep in mind. In 1917, socialism had never held power anywhere. Okay, no, no such thing as a socialist government had ever existed. So there was nothing. So the only thing that socialism represented was an aspirant idea. And keep in mind, the basic ideas of socialism, what we're really talking about here is Marxism. The basic ideas of Marxism are, you know, Marxism doesn't claim its goal is to enslave people. Not at all. It's just to free people. Remember, the, the, the Marxian idea is to create a world in which there are no masters above and no slaves below. Everyone according to their ability to each according to their need. A world of peace and equality and brotherhood. Now, that, that's what it aspires to. And, and if you keep that in mind, you can understand why people have been drawn to it for that reason. Because, I mean, it, it's really a religion. It, it's, a, it's this religion that wants to create this millennial world. It wants to, it wants to bring heaven to earth. And that's an idea that, you know, if you, you, know, if you view, you know, no matter how much of a... Um, money-rubbing capitalist you might be if you have anything in the way of higher ideas, what of that are you opposed to? Right. I mean, it sounds great. So, and yeah, it, it sounds great. Paper, and, and, and on paper, and it's never... So the idea is that when you know Lenin and his crew, his group of Marxist revolutionaries come into power, that everyone would know what to expect. No, nobody knew what to expect. Right. But they knew Tsarism was... in. I mean, the incompetence was off the charts... I mean, they're bungling and mistakes and warfare. It was, well, I mean, I think the best way, you know, Nicholas II wasn't a bad man. He was a lousy czar. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at the he, wrong he, time, yeah. Well, he wasn't, you know, the point was he, he wasn't tough when he should have been and he wasn't lenient when he should. I mean, he was, he was just a, a terrible politician. Yeah, terrible. And even to the point that by 1917, people who supported the monarchy believed that it couldn't survive with him as the, he had, he had no friends. He had everyone against him in that case. But on the other hand, the czarist regime was, it worked. Uh, Russia was going through, one of the other things that my book makes a point of is that if you look, you know, once stability sort of returned after this failed revolution in the decade between the revolution of 1905 and the outbreak of World War I, Russia's economy is the fastest growing in the world. It is growing by leaps and bounds, and they're developing all kind of aircraft industry and automobile industry. More, you know, Russia was uh, the American International Harvester Corporation. Its its biggest source of foreign business was in Russia. Right, it's huge. I mean, just huge population, yeah. huge natural resources. I think you pointed out in your book, just all kinds. Yeah, and these natural resources also are almost entirely undeveloped. So. The Russian Empire encompassed one-sixth of the world's land area. It had every possible natural resource. No country on earth, not even the United States, had the, the mineral wealth that Russia had in terms of oil, gold, platinum, you name it, you, you know, manganese, whatever it was, it's all out there. And it's all undeveloped. Now, if you're thinking about what you would want to invest in, do you want to invest in a country that's already thoroughly developed? I mean, okay. Or do you want to invest in a country which has all the potential resources in the world so much that could produce so much gold it could completely destroy the value of gold if you wanted to or to preserve it? And now you can invest in regime change 
and make all of that available. Hopefully, I mean, remember, it's an investment, which is a risk. So and maybe unfortunately, it out, maybe this, it this kind of approach didn't just happen in Russia. It's happened in a lot of countries around the world. Where I think you can see the same thing going on today. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I, I think it's a. Richard, it's been great to talk with you. Really fascinating topic and discussion and book. Unfortunately, I got to wrap it up. What sure. would you like to add or anything I missed before we conclude the discussion? Uh, well, I'd just bring back your, uh, your reference to, to my books, which are available. Uh, Trust No One, uh, Secret World of Sidney Riley, uh, Secret Agent 666, and Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, of course, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. Uh, those are all available on Amazon, if anybody wants to find them. Uh, and also my great courses, um, Real History of Secret Societies um, and uh, Crimes of the Century. And I'd also add that I'm, I'm working on another one, which will be coming out in about a year, called Secrets of the Occult. So, you know, oh, that's who knows perfect. where that's going to go. Okay, yeah, well, I'd crazy. love to have you back when you uh, – tell me when you publish that. We can talk about that. In I will. I will. I will. Awesome. Again, the author is Richard Spence, and the title of the book is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you. All right, take care. Stay there, stay there.